Just Thrive Probiotic is the first and only 100% all-natural spore-form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. What is spore-form DNA? Well, spores are created by various bacteria to protect themselves against harsh environments. So the fact that Just Thrive uh, uses spore-form DNA and spore-form bacteria means that these bacteria are going to survive the stomach acid and go to your colon and your lower digestive system, where is where they're supposed to go, and help you out and increase their effectiveness. So I think it's a fantastic thing that they have spore-form bacteria as part of their probiotic. It's the subject of uh, groundbreaking clinical studies, and Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and undeniable connection to the immune system and brain. So Just Thrive, out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, they're offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. So if you go to justthrivehealth.com today, put in the code GENIUS15 to get advantage of uh, incredible savings and learn more. And I just got some in the mail as a thank you from Just Thrive, and I'm, I took my first two tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing the effects. So again, go to justthrivehealth.com today. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Daniel Shuloff. He's the CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods. And we're going to talk about uh, Keto Natural and his background, etc. So, Daniel, thank you for coming. Of course. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. What what got you interested in dog food and why keto? But uh, tell me your background first, please. Uh, yeah, sure. I um I used to be an attorney, an intellectual property litigation attorney. I um, worked at a big international firm helping large businesses litigate intellectual property disputes, and uh, I had been doing that for about five years when I got my first dog. My dog was a big male rottweiler or like super like a quintessential rottweiler like big strong and like with a protective instinct and so he he was somebody that needed a uh a like daily exercise in order to become a polite member of society and so basically i i like got inter- i'd always been kind of a um a science-minded person and i don't know if you've had other lawyers on your show if you know any in your life but one thing you sometimes hear them well, talk I about one thing that I always, when I hear this comment, it resonates with me, that when you're a litigator, uh, you, you develop a certain kind of like intellectual hubris where like you have to learn at an expert level the subject matter involved in any kind of like dispute you may be in. So like in the course of my career, we litigated like trade secrets involving aircraft. I'm like, I don't know anything about engineering aircraft. I'm like voice over IP technology and like, I don't know anything about voice over IP technology. And so like you do that enough times, you develop a certain kind of like confidence that um, you can figure out, you can teach yourself expert level knowledge, right? And so when I had this dog and I was like trying to exercise him effectively and like make sure that he wouldn't bite anybody, I um, got serious about understanding like the evidentiary record around what exercise is good for dogs and what it's like for them and how you do it effectively and all that kind of stuff. 
And it led me basically to understand how big of a problem obesity is among dogs in the uh, dogs and cats in the Western world. And it's a colossal problem. It's worse than a lifetime of smoking for them. It's like literally the, the impact it's been shown to be um, on their lifespan is more significant than a human being smoking cigarettes for their entire life. I noticed that one of the problem is though dogs are masters of looking sad, like they've never eaten. Like whenever I come home, we have four of them and no matter what they've had, I look at them and my wife goes, don't be fooled. They just had this, that, and the other. And I look at them, I say, is this true? They just look at me with glistening eyes and wagging tails. You know, can't tell. Familiar with that look. Mine do the same thing. And like, if you ask, at least at this, the time when I was learning all this, which was like 20, maybe 13, 2012, I, uh, the mainstream veterinary explanation for like why half the dogs in America are overweight or obese was basically that like, either it's the case that you're just describing where it's like pet owners are too weak willed and we're like, we just, we can't stop ourselves from making them fat when they beg or we're too lazy and we can't give them the exercise they need. Or we're just too stupid and we just don't understand that obesity is such a big deal for them. And um, none of that really added up for me. And so I basically went down the rabbit hole trying to understand more about that issue and basically ended up quitting my job and working on a book that took me four years to write that I published in 2016. And it's it's uh, an examination of the obesity problem among pets in the Western world and um, why the, in my eyes, the veterinary dogma on this issue doesn't really add up. Well, there's the concept of people food versus dog food, which I think is very damaging because, you know, you label something as dog food and then you think, oh, that's what the dog's supposed to have and nothing else. And you think you're being a good pet owner maybe by only giving a kibble or, you know, I, I don't well, exercise not even mentioned in that circumstance, but what do you consider to be some of the veterinary dogma that causes problems? Yeah, in the um, if you pick up a veterinary nutrition textbook that's used to teach vets about nutritional subjects, um, what's implicitly endorsed in that book is that to a large degree, all calories are created equal and carbohydrate is perfectly healthy for dogs and cats. And I disagree with both of those contentions in a significant way. I consider them kind of crazy, but I've heard some people try to put dogs on a vegan diet. But then I've also spoken to some vets that say, you know, dogs can be almost all carnivore. So that, that seems to be a better diet for them. But I have yeah, yet to find someone that says, oh, just give them kibble. Yeah. I mean, it for me, when trying to get to the bottom of a subject that's been studied through the use of the scientific method, you can make the most progress working with um, the biggest, most powerful fundamental concepts first. And in just about all issues of biology, that most powerful fundamental scientific concept is the theory of evolution via natural selection. And um, in the case of dogs, and it's why I begin, like the first chapter of my book is basically my experience living with the biologists at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is like the premier place for the study of wild gray wolves in the United States. And the reason that we start there in the book is because dogs and wolves are incredibly genetically similar. They're two distinct species, but they can literally breed with each other, which is like more often how you'll hear a biologist describe the distinction between one species and another. They typically can't breed. Dogs and wolves are so similar, they can breed together. And they're literally like more than a million dog-wolf hybrids in the United States right now. And sure. 
and there's um and why that's interesting is because if you look at populations of wild wolves what you'll see is none of the chronic diseases that you see in dogs and cats raised in captivity in the Western world. Things like these common, very common epidemic level, non-communicable diseases. You know, it's like when you see these, these, the things that we call diseases of modernity that are like very, very common in both human and pet populations, but that aren't communicable, you know, they're not COVID. They don't spread from dog to dog. There's something sociologically, culturally, environmentally that's wrong that's giving rise to it in mass and so because wolves are so similar and they don't get any of these these diseases you can do a real there's a natural experiment going on right now in what ways is my dog living like a wolf currently lives because that that's the way it essentially has evolved to live and among other no go ahead well i'm just saying go ahead i'm just saying okay yeah so in in the case of wolves if you want to understand what it's like to live like a wolf. You go to the folks at the Yellowstone Wolf Project. They know better than anybody else in the world. And what they will tell you, among other things, is first of all, when it comes to diet, wolves consume 0.0% dietary carbohydrate. Okay. So for, and dogs and wolves shared the same genetic lineage for more than 99.9% of their evolution as a canine species. Okay. Like I said, they're so similar, they interbreed. And so, Even today, wolves eat 0.0% carbohydrate. And if you look essentially at when carbohydrate got introduced into the diet of the domestic dog as it evolved, you're talking about something that entered its um, lineage, you know, after, like I said, after 99.9% of its evolution um, had occurred already. And so you're dealing with something that's incredibly novel, really new, hasn't had time yet to impact the genome through natural selection, something like that. And so when you have somebody who says you should feed your dog an all carnivore diet, well, one thing you can rest assured about that is that is by far the most common thing in its evolutionary heritage. That is what, uh, you know, like I said, wolves eat literally 0.0% carbohydrate. They eat meat and literally nothing else. So if you do put your dog on a vegan diet, what you're essentially doing is you're rolling the dice. You know, you're saying, I trust the food scientists practicing today, the folks that make this product well enough to know exactly what my dog needs that I'm going to essentially allow them to overrule mother nature. Say so this thing has never been done in my dog's history. If we engineer the product just right, it supposedly will be healthy enough for the animal. And I'm not willing to do that with my dogs. That's too risky. To That's me. good. That's my perspective on, on those kind of matters. To give your body the important immune support it needs so you can feel your absolute best. Get your gut in order with Just Thrive Probiotic. Uh, Very nice of them. They're offering 15% off for listeners all across their website. So go to justthrivehealth.com and put in the code GENIUS15. You can take advantage of incredible savings and learn more about their products. What do pet owners tend to feed their dogs? Do they feed them just kibble? Have you seen like the quote-unquote dog food versus human food? Framing um, uh, affects people? Like what do you observe? Sure. Something like... 90% of the U.S. pet food market is kibble products. And kibble, making kibble, I've come to learn since publishing my book and founding a dog food company, is basically like making um, meaty little nubs of pasta or bread. You essentially like mix a bunch of dry ingredients together with wet ingredients, heat them up, they bind together into like a little dough, and then you cut it into little pieces, little nuggets of kibble, and then dry it. 
so that it's shelf stable. And the thing that's implicit in that is the fact that you need dietary carbohydrate. You need starch. Like if you ever tried to, I don't know why you do this, but I ask people that frame it this way all the time. If you ever try to bake a loaf of bread without using flour or make a cupcake without using flour, you'll know that the dough doesn't want to hold together when you heat it up. That's like what the flour does. It's the starch. It gelatinizes when you make it hot. And what that does is binds all the other ingredients together. So you get a dough. Um, and if you take the flour out, that doesn't happen. It just crumbles. And so kibble's kind of made the same way. It doesn't want to hold together if you don't use dietary carbohydrate. As a result, uh, in addition, <laughs> dietary carbohydrate is hugely inexpensive as an ingredient. Like a calorie of flour is something like 10% the cost of a calorie of chicken or chicken byproduct. So there's a strong business incentive on a couple of different grounds to make, to sell these kinds of products to people. And so that's how, that's the backbone of the industry, basically. Like I said, 90% of um, pet food products are that style. Um, the alternatives that make up the small little, um, the remainder are either raw products. So these are sold either frozen or freeze dried. And um, because they're not, they don't, they're not subjected to the manufacturing process that makes kibble, which is called extrusion. They're not subjected to that. You don't need starch. And so you can, you can make raw pet food products that are all meat or largely meat with much less. Oh yeah. We, at the farmer's market, they had like these big, we call them meat pucks, like a hockey puck and it's frozen and yeah, the dogs like it just out of the freezer. They like it frozen actually and they eat it and they're happy. They have like frozen meatballs and they love it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, I mean, for me, you know, we sell Keto Natural makes very low carbohydrate kibble. We're the only company that's currently doing things or, you know, first company to ever really crack this nut of making kibble with very little carbohydrate. That said, for me, the gold standard for feeding your dog, if things like cost and convenience are not issues, I, I, I think the gold standard is a commercially prepared, so not a homemade, all meat. So not something that's, you know, meat mixed with lots of uh, potato and other vegetables, raw diet. That's the closest thing that, that to me is the kind of the gold standard for, and you know, the, the three qualities. You want it commercially prepared as, as opposed to home prepared, because if you buy a commercially prepared product, there are all sorts of like micronutrient, you know, vitamins and minerals that science has shown over a long period of time, dogs require in certain quantities and in certain ratios in order to prevent them from developing like deficiency diseases. And if you buy a commercial product, you can feel reasonably confident that it complies with all that. There's a regulatory regime in the US that's pretty well evidentiary backed and essentially requires that all the products hit all those metrics. Whereas if you make something for your dog at home, you're not gonna necessarily you know, be able to do that. You run a little risk. And then the all meat and raw thing is just because that's the most, like I said, evolutionarily consistent number one and number two it avoids like all the dangers of carbohydrate that i highlighted before so something like you described so, so, so what did you find out so ideally zero carbs is the goal but you i mean why why put carbs in there at all is it just needed to stabilize the product or like what you know why did you settle in on carbs or just a low amount oh yeah i mean it's because of the manufacturing challenge i highlighted it's yeah. like basically you can't make kibble i, I we try you know our primary goal was to make a kibble with as little carbohydrate as humanly possible. And so we were able to get it down to less than 5% of the product. So it's quite low. 
but we can't get it to zero without the whole thing just falling apart. We'd be selling like, uh, you know, dust. And what other nuances or what else did you find out that is important to include in the kibble uh, to give it the max nutrition? Like, are you putting in any probiotics or you know, what, other, what other facets of the nutrition are important? For my money, where you should be focused is on nutrients as opposed to ingredients. Um, a lot for, there's a whole lot about the pet food industry that is gross. The kind of manufacturing and regulatory side of it, it's an ugly industry. There's a lot of consumer deception. There's a lot of bad faith. There's a lot of making products with very wholesome looking imagery that are incredible, do very bad things to these animals' bodies. And, and also, as a result of that, largely, consumer practices are kind of wonky. Like the things that are trends in the consumer on the consumer side in the pet food industry often are things that are completely disconnected from the issues that really matter to pet owners, which things like health. And so one of those is there's a big tendency for um, consumers to really focus in, hone in on ingredient quality. I'm using, you can't see me, but I'm making the air quotes symbols with my hands because it's it's a kind of a nonsense concept. It's a concept that has no real definition and is sort of just about how much or little the consumer feels a sense of disgust when thinking about the ingredient. Um, So for me, the much better way to think about what to feed your dog is to think about nutrients rather than ingredients, because there's a whole load of science that tells you what is and isn't healthy in that domain. And so other than, for me, one of the most important nutritional issues to reduce carbohydrate as much as possible, full stop. The second one is to make sure that your dog is getting at least as much protein as it needs. If you, I I like exist on the weird fringes of the keto and low carb community. Like there is a, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who identify as I'm a keto person, I'm a low carb person, not just research scientists either, just like. Uh, everyday people. And a lot of them believe that the most efficacious kind of keto diet for them is one that's very high in fat content, that there are reasons why you don't want to feed protein, essentially, if your goal is to deepen ketosis as much as possible. I'm not one of those people when it comes to um, how to feed your dog. The average wolf consumes about 63%, gets about 63% of its calories from protein sources. And we know through scientific research of all different kinds that protein is invaluable for dogs. It does all sorts of things, you know, beyond just the basics of like helping it build and maintain skeletal muscle. Unfortunately, the regulations in the U.S. only require that pet food, dog food products contain, I think it's 22% protein in order to be considered like regulatory, get the regulatory pass basically. I think that you want to be much higher than that to ensure that your dog gets what it needs. And so for me, it's not as easy as saying maximize protein intake because fats are uh, essential nutrient for dogs. You absolutely have to feed them some degree of them, but trying to mimic that kind of wolf ratio of getting as close to something like 60, 65% of calories from protein, um, including all the essential amino acids, just like human beings, dogs have some amino acids they can make on their own. Others, they have to get through food maximizing those, the, the intake of the essential ones is a vital thing as well. So yeah, those are a few of them. Well, so you get protein content and what about fat content and micronutrients and other components of the kibble? Um, are you putting in everything with the kitchen sink or are you sticking with the basics? Um, so with regard to fat, there's like, you know, there's a two, two, two things to think about. One is the baseline that the regulators say, you got to give your dog this much fat 
or else you're essentially going to give it a deficiency disease. It's like, an, you know, like I said, an essential nutrient. And I think that amount works out to something like 11% of the product. Don't quote me on that, but it's something like that. Then there's the wolf baseline, right? Like if you subscribe to the notion that mother nature knows best and that trying to outsmart her by engineering something that you think is an improvement is kind of a folly, then you want to feed something that's closer to 30% fat, like reasonably high in fat calorie content. And so we split the difference somewhere in between. There's plenty more than um, the animal needs in order to avoid a deficiency disease, but it's not like a very fat forward product either. With respect to micronutrients, the, you know, those aren't, it's not the case that there's any, in my eyes, any persuasive evidence that loading up on like, you know, maximizing one specific micronutrient is, um, you know, healthful for a dog, that, that, that it's some kind of like, uh, you know, medicine that essentially you want to take as much of it as possible. Um, it's much more about making sure that you pass over the baselines that are required to avoid deficiency diseases. And then there are a few places where the ratios need to be right. So like with the nutrients, calcium and phosphorus, in order to like basically prevent the dog from developing um, growth abnormalities, you need to make sure that those are consumed in specific ratio. And so what you got to do is you got to do a lot of testing, basically. There's like, um, you know, there are chemical analysis labs that basically for a for a fee, it would take your product and subject it to all kinds of testing. We'll tell you exactly how much is in there. And it took us about a year of R&D work before we were able to sell a product that we felt good about that hit all the marks that we wanted it to hit. So yeah, we sell what's called a complete and balanced um, pet food product, which is basically has the regulator's seal of approval on it, that it's all your dog needs to take in in order to get all of the um, vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients that it needs. Well, did you run into a problem where the requirements for, uh, you know, a balanced diet or a balanced food, whatever it's called, were kind of against the principles that you've discovered through your research? Well, it's interesting. Not directly, no. Because if you read the regulations, so basically there's a, what the regulations look to, where they come from, is from what's essentially the Bible of veterinary nutritional science research. It's a thing that the National Academies of Sciences puts out and updates every like decade or so. Um, that's called the nutrient requirements of dogs and cats. And it's basically just textbook and it just walks through each class of nutrients and all of the existing research surrounding it. And it's totally fair, totally on point, totally good. And so all that stuff that's like, you know, the, the nutritional profiles that the regulators require is all sensible enough as far as it goes, but it's like what brands do with that. That's really the shady business because, what the National Academies tell us and what's embodied in the regulations is that dietary carbohydrate, unlike fats, unlike protein, unlike all kinds of vitamins, all kinds of minerals, is not an essential nutrient for dogs and cats. If you take carbohydrate completely out of the diet, unlike protein, unlike fat, unlike vitamins and minerals, nothing weird or bad happens to the animal. There's no requirement for carbohydrate. It's not in the regulations. It's not in the, the science. And yet, it is by far, by far the most common nutrient found in pet foods. And so it's not like the rate, it's not like the profiles themselves are wrong. It's that they're being, I guess you call it like misused, right? It's like they're, why are we using something that has no, that the dog does not require and then taking away from the dog does nothing bad. And we're building the product around that. That's the ugly part of it. So do you have a lot of customers that have been using your version of the kibble for a while? And if so, what do they notice in regards to their dogs? 
Yeah, so there are a variety of things. I mean, we've been in business since 2017. So, you know, we've got folks who have been on our product for four years. My dogs are the, I, would, I guess, are the <laughs> the ones that have been eating it the longest of anyone in the world. And Your I like dogs to- are actually guinea pigs in, in one sense. In a way, in a way, but I got to tell you, like, a lot went into, you know, I wrote a book about my, like, I don't have kids, I'm 40, I don't have kids, and um, I never have, and I, you know, my dogs are pretty important to me, I literally left my career to focus on them, and um, hmm. so I'm not, I, I wasn't in the market to, like, put them in any kind of jeopardy, that felt, you know, um, that said. I wasn't saying, like, you're going to hurt them or anything, but yeah, it's kind of funny that, in a way, they are you know, they're, they're still dogs, but they're guinea pigs as well. It's just a bad show. Yeah, no, it's just how it like, I, it's the only, maybe this is because I came to business kind of late in my life, like being an entrepreneur, but like, it's, it's the most obvious thing in the world to me that if you're going to go out there and sell a product to, to, to the public and you're going to tell them that they should use it, you damn well better use it yourself. You know, you better put your, you put your name on it and make sure that you're using it yourself. Otherwise there's a, um, there's something implicit about the, about the quality of the product in that. That said, uh, so some of the things that are common are number one, dogs lose body fat dramatically and reasonably quickly. Like you can basically, you cannot make a dog uh, obese without feeding it carbohydrate. So if you take a dog that's moderately overweight and put it on a very low carbohydrate diet, even if you keep the number of calories that it's eating the same, I repeat that, even if you don't change the calories at all, if you take the carbohydrate out of the diet, the dog will become lean. That's just a fact. It happens all every one of our customers that happens to you can. So there are insanely, insanely diabetes is a big problem among dogs and cats in the Western world. And even crazier is the fact that the um, standard of care for a dog that has diabetes is a prescription only product made by a big kibble company. That's like 40% dietary carbohydrate. And you, you probably, it's insane. It's insane. And so we have a lot of customers that have diabetic dogs that go, I, you know, I couldn't believe that the product the vet recommended was 40% carbohydrate. We switched gears and now his blood sugar is far lower than it was before. We need far less insulin than we needed before, that kind of stuff. Do dogs react very quickly, even if they're diabetic? Uh, first of all, like what characterizes a diabetic dog? Like what happens to them versus humans? And you know, when you give them the right food, how fast do they uh, recover? So it's not, it doesn't fit the way that dogs get diabetes is not the same as the like type two, type one typology that you see in human beings. It's basically, uh, it's closer to type one than type two in that it's like an absolute insulin deficiency as opposed to a relative one. For those of your listeners that don't understand, you know, pathophysiology of diabetes, basically like diabetes is a, um, if you eat dietary carbohydrate, it goes into your bloodstream as glucose, sugar. And sugar is toxic if it hangs out in the blood for too long. And so your body deals with that by producing a hormone called insulin. And insulin drives the glucose into other tissues where it can be held stably and prevent you from going into what's called a diabetic coma. If you have diabetes, you don't produce enough insulin to deal with the glucose. Type 2 diabetes is when your peripheral cells have basically become desensitized to insulin. You've had so much carbohydrate and so much insulin in your blood for so long that you need more and more and more and more of it, and you can no longer produce enough to actually manage it. It's a you know, chronic developmental type disease. Whereas in type 1 diabetes, the pancreas just, you're born without them producing insulin very well. That's what I mean when I say an absolute deficiency. And with dogs, it's more like that. 
So you don't, while you can essentially cure a type two diabetics diabetes by taking all dietary carbohydrate out of their diet, you don't cure a dog of diabetes by taking the carbohydrate out of its diet, but you make it much, much more manageable that, you know, fix for diabetes such as it is, is to inject insulin exogenously. You buy insulin, put it in a syringe, you inject it into the body to supplement what your body's able to make on its own. And it's expensive. It's a news item pressing in the news. And, um, yeah, basically you put a dog on a very low carbohydrate diet that has diabetes and it will um, very quickly, right after the first meal, you'll see lower blood sugar numbers, which mean you need less exogenous insulin. Um, and so to, I guess to answer your question, that's not something that takes time to develop. That's just like very quickly, right away after that first meal, you'll be able to see, oh my God, my dog's glucose numbers are completely different than they were before. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, you mentioned lifespan differences. Did you compare that to, I guess, just carnivore diets, or did you compare it to your kibble versus not your kibble? Like, have you gotten to the point where you've been able to do, let's say, a clinical trial with your kibble versus uh, others? Uh, we are actually in the process of running a clinical trial right now. Lifespan is not one of the outcomes we are looking at. And the only reason for that, you could probably guess if you thought about it long enough, but basically it takes forever. It takes a long time. Right? Yeah, it takes forever. You know, we've been in business for four years. We'd have to run a study for 10 more at least in order to get good data on that, which is not realistic for us at this point. So the stuff we are looking at is stuff that you can measure within a period of like two months and see if there's going to be a change. And so it's body composition and fat content. It's blood sugar and circulating insulin. Um, and it's other kind of biomarkers of that, like biomarkers of inflammation, stuff like that. We're running it in conjunction with a, a Canadian university called the University of Guelph. And uh, I expect that we'll be publishing stuff by the end of 22 would be my best guess. But it will be stuff that if the results come out, as I'm hugely confident they will, it, it deserves to give the veterinary community a, um, a real shock as to what they're doing with respect to treating dogs for diabetes and for obesity. Well, what uh, anecdotally have you observed, you know, by seeing, let's say, testimonials from you know, dozens of customers and for you yourself with your animals? Like, what can you, you know, again, I know it's not a clinical trial, but what can you say seems to be happening to your customers that are using this predominantly instead of the old stuff they're using? So some of the, I mean, there's stuff we can feel really confident is happening, um, like I said, with regard to body composition and regards to kind of metabolic stuff, blood sugar, insulin, other hormones, that kind of thing. That's all, I know that's going on because it's been well studied. Um, and when you have consumers who are motivated enough to actually measure that stuff meaningfully, you know, like diabetics actually, they measure blood sugar because they need to do that in order to know how much insulin to give their dogs and tell that's going on. From an anecdotal perspective, you definitely get the anecdotes about dogs losing body fat. And my own, I, I, have, a, I have a St. Bernard a big adult male, St. Bernard now, and I adopted him. And when I adopted him, he was already five years old. And I adopted him from a nice family. Uh, I don't even know why they gave him up. I didn't really like pry, but um, sweet people. But none of them had like written a book about dog obesity. And so none of them were really like hip to that issue. And so he was kind of a fat boy when I got him. Like he wasn't like colossal where everybody, no matter how much you've looked at this issue, would be like, oh yeah, that dog is definitely obese. But like enough that my, you know, kind of seasoned eye could be like, oh yeah, this dog is, is overweight. And he's 165 pounds then. And I swear on my life, this is the on only thing that we did to make his life any different was put him on ketona, which is to say we got rid of all the carbohydrate in his diet. And he's a 130 pound dog now. 
and he's ripped. It's like you can see, you know, like how it looks when you don't have much fat. You look like a athlete basically you can see certain bones the ribs you can see a lot of the musculature and it's just so uncommon in saint bernard's it's so weird like he's so athletic and it's just not at all like what i thought, thought of as like a, i think of a saint bernard's like big lumbering huge messy bleh, dog yeah and slobbering you know, yeah. not what he is he like it just moves like a very little i don't know herding dog or something but just at six times the size. Like when he runs, he's like really low to the ground and his back is perfectly horizontal and he can move super fast. And it's just like, he's really impressive. Um, so you see a lot. Beautiful. That's cool. It is cool. It is cool. And he's almost 10 years old now too, which is like outside the lifespan that's expected from them. Um, so I can't, you know, that stuff's really hard. Who knows about it's irresponsible for me to make claims about lifespan, but I can tell you that like, it is absolutely the case that the leaner your dog is, the longer it is likely to live and that carbohydrate makes your dog fat. Um, so I don't have, I've never run a study that on exactly what the lifespan difference between our product and some other product is, but those two things are both true. And so it certainly stands to reason when that if you want your dog to live as long as possible, as I do, that you should make it as lean as possible, which means get the carbohydrate out of its diet. Yeah. So like, you know, a common enough problem that a lot of pet owners experience, um, are dogs and cats that have like allergic, have skin reactions basically to certain um, ingredients. And more often than not, what that is in my experience is the starch content. It's like kind of the carbohydrate mix and the type of starch that's in there. And so it is really quite rare that you have, it's not like the reason for the product, but it's very rare that our customers go, oh my God, my dog was like really itchy and was such a problem when I put them on your diet, typically like clears up stuff like that. Yeah, a friend of mine just mentioned that he changed to some other food, and yeah, his dog was having a lot of problems. So he changed back, and then the dog was okay. What Do you have any experience on what ingredients uh, you've seen out there that do cause dogs to itch or have adverse reactions? I mean, it's not ever. There are plenty of dogs that don't develop uh, skin reactions or digestive reactions, but there are also plenty that do to products like corn. You know, basically, it's like a very inflammatory thing. Your dog can has learned over the past, you know, evolutionary blink of an eye to digest that stuff, to like actually pull nutritional energy from that stuff, but just barely. You know, it's been digesting meat products and proteins and fats for hundreds of millions of generations. And now it just recently can just barely digest starch. But the gut microbiome has to be like balanced to it. Like this is maybe this is what your friend experienced when you usually if you buy a, if you if you're looking at switching dog food products and you look at the new one um, and you look at the back of the bag, it'll tell you um, transition onto this product slowly. You know, like over the course of the week, gradually give your dog more and more. And the the reason is because if you don't do that, if you just change it very abruptly, dogs very often experience digestive upset. They get diarrhea or vomit or what, what have you. And the reason for that is because as they've been on one diet for a very long time, and because it's hard for them to digest starch, their gut microbiome gets like, a t- you know how there's just like, I, I don't know, millions of different species of gut microbiota that have to like over time, depending on what you eat, become very attuned to your diet and develop the ecosystem develops in a certain kind of way. And if you just switch that all of a sudden, switch the kind of, like it, basically the animal's not prepared to just all of a sudden start digesting a completely different carbohydrate profile. And so that's something that's very common when you switch from, you know, a product that's whatever, 
heavily based on corn to one that's heavily based on, uh, you know, potato or oats or something like that. And we make sure that we tell our, our consumers, when you switch on our product, you can switch over right away. Don't worry about all that transitional stuff because it's not necessary. Dogs don't have any trouble digesting um, protein and fat. And so you get rid of carbohydrate. You never experience those kind of same kind of digestive issues during a transition. Well, very good, Daniel. What's, what's the best place for people to find out more about your product? Where can they go? Yeah, so our website is ketonaturalpetfoods.com. Uh, you can find the product on uh, major online retail platforms as well. We don't sell it in brick and mortar. It's all through uh, e-commerce channels. You can find me if you poke around the internet enough. You can find copies of my book, which is called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, and purchase that from retailers as well. But we, we try to make our, you know, our philosophy is that pet owners deserve a smarter pet food industry than they've got right now. And so we speak to you like you're an adult and we talk about things like evidence and real measurable health outcomes and don't talk so much in platitudes and kind of hollow slogans. And so I think you, your listeners will find that if you go to our website, ketonaturalpetfoods.com, you, you'll learn a lot about what we're trying to do. We don't hide the ball and you'll learn kind of the sub, we're trying to be a substantive, like differentiate, differentiated company. And so you can learn a lot about what we do just going to that site. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. And then it's nice yeah. to see someone that, uh, you know, has such a passion for dog health. It's really cool. Yeah, man. By all means, if you have, if your listeners have questions, uh, you, you, I'm easy enough to find. If you ever want to have me back, I could talk about this stuff until the cows. My pleasure. Oh, again, thank you for coming, Daniel. I appreciate it. Remember, before you go, the easiest thing you can do to support your immune system and your gut health is to check out Just Thrive Probiotic. Go to their website, Just Thrive health.com and use the promo code genius 15 at checkout. You get 15% off. Thank you. Just thrive. You've been listening to the finding genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the finding genius podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and want to be smarter than everybody else. Become a premium member at finding genius podcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.